Hey everyone, welcome back to Unjustly Podcast. My name is Sandy and this is my co-host Stephanie. Hi everyone. So FYI, I just got my second dose of the <laughs> vaccine. Um, I got Moderna and I'm feeling a little bit out of it, so I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I am wrapped up in a blanket right now. Um, very unprofessional, but I made it and I think that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> so bear with me. Um the case we have today has been on my radar for a few months now, but after a couple listeners requested that we cover this one, I decided it was definitely time, especially since we are on a bit of a time crunch for this active case. It technically falls under a guilty or innocent edition, so let's examine this one together. This is the case of Richard Glossop, currently incarcerated on death row in Oklahoma. I'm going to state right now this case is a mess. Okay. <laughs> it's a complete mess, so we're just going to get through this. Uh, I got my sources from savingrichardglossop.com, a documentary called Killing Richard Glossop, an article in The Frontier by Ziva Brandstetter, Wikipedia, and transcripts from the case. So I stumbled upon Richard Glossop's case while I was researching for the Julius Jones episode we did a few months back. Um, there is a certain zealous DA that was involved in both cases, but we'll get into those details a little later. Uh, but today there is a big media push to prove Glossop's innocence and help him get exonerated. Some high profile people who are also in support of his exoneration include Mark Ruffalo, Peter Sarsgaard, Susan Sarandon, and Pope Francis. Oh, yeah. So Glossop was also a part of a U.S. Supreme Court case for the lethal injection protocols. So there's a lot going on with this case. So let's get into it. On January 7th, 1997, Barry Van Treese was brutally beat to death with a baseball bat at the Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma City. He was also robbed. Van Treese was the owner of the motel. Richard Glossop was the manager who had worked there for a couple of years and lived in an apartment behind the motel with his girlfriend, Deanna Wood. The Best Budget Inn was in a sketchy area and was next door to a strip club. The motel was also known to be a hotspot for drug activity. The night of the murder, Glossop turned over under $3,000 of the motel's profit to Van Trees, who then stashed the money in his car. He was going through some financial pressure and tax issues and was hoarding cash in his car, which included over $20,000 kept in envelopes. So Van Trees then left to go to Tulsa to visit another motel he owned. He told the front desk that if his wife called looking for him to let her know that he would be home in about five hours. But for reasons unknown, Van Trees did not go home and instead came back to the Best Budget Inn and stayed the night. Now, it is alleged that Van Trees had a history of bringing sex workers back to the motel with him. Again, this is alleged. But the next morning, Van Trees's family realized he is missing and files a missing persons report. His car is later found in the parking lot of a credit union. Eventually, they find his body in room 102 of the motel. And the murder was violent. There was blood spatter all over the room and obvious signs of a physical struggle. Police immediately bring in Glossop for questioning, and going into this interrogation, investigators already believed that Glossop did it. And it's very obvious that they went into this situation with tunnel vision, and you can see it from the interrogation tapes. Detective Bimo, the one who spearheaded the questioning, stated he felt Glossop was arrogant and irritated him the way he answered questions. Mm -hmm. I saw the interrogation tapes and Glossop was extremely frustrated because Bimo wasn't listening to anything he had to say. They kept dismissing him and pushing the narrative of what they thought happened. But Glossop tells them at around 4 a.m., the maintenance worker at the hotel, Justin Sneed, showed up to his apartment to tell him that some homeless people had broken a window in one of the rooms. Glossop told him he could help him fix it in the morning. But Glossop noticed that Sneed had a lump on his head and looked a little beat up. As Sneed was leaving, he turned around and casually said, oh yeah, and I killed Barry. And he said it while smiling. What? Creepy, right? Yeah. Glossop said he took it as a joke because of the way he said it, like his mannerism was like, oh, and I killed Barry. Like, <laughs> who says that? <laughs> um, but in the morning, Sneed and Glossop cleaned up the broken glass that was outside of room 102 and put up a new window. Glossop didn't question Sneed's story, and the curtains to the room were closed, so he says he didn't notice that there was a dead body inside. Mm. 
After that, they went their separate ways. So who is Justin Sneed? At the time of the murder, Sneed was a 19-year-old battling with an addiction to methamphetamines and had a long history of substance abuse. Sneed was said to be somewhat of a sketchy character who often talked about robbing people. Sneed was involved in drug deals at the motel, and he was on police's radar who were investigating these drug activities. Sneed also had a warrant for his arrest in Texas, but he skipped town. So he's not the best Mm -hmm. (laughs) character. Uh, So interrogators bring in Sneed. I've seen some of the interrogation tapes, but I read the whole transcript of it, and it was absolutely sketchy from the start. So Detective Bemo starts by saying, you know people are saying you did this and want you to go down for it all, but I know it wasn't just you. So they already had it up in their mind that there was a two-person job. Mm -hmm. Literally the first thing that they said when they came in, it's like, we know it wasn't just you, we know it was other people. Mm -hmm. They're saying it was you and they want you to go down for it. So we're like here to help you not go down for the whole thing on Mm -hmm. your own. And then BMO says, we have Richard Glossop in custody and he is putting this all on you. So you need to tell us the truth so you don't take the rap by yourself. You're facing capital murder, but maybe we can help you with it for exchange of your testimony. I feel like they just opened the door right up for him to lie. Absolutely. Yeah, because he had said nothing at this point. They just kind of gave them or he gave Sneed all this information Mm -hmm. from the beginning. Yeah. So Detective Bemo keeps feeding him information and pushing him to admit that he did this with Glossop. So finally, Sneed confesses to killing and robbing Vantrese. Uh, Sneed stated that Glossop hired him to kill Vantrese and that they would split the money they could steal from the motel. He further claimed that Glossop wanted Vantrese killed because he was extorting money and didn't want to get caught, but he also thought that if Vantrese was dead, then he could run the motel without him being the boss. Because no one would notice. Right. Um, So all of this already sounds weird to me because that's not how business works. (laughs) Uh, If an owner of a business dies, the business isn't just given to the manager. (laughs) So um, also it has been pointed out that Glossop had regular access to thousands of dollars in cash daily as the manager without anyone looking over him. So if he wanted money, he could have just stolen it and blamed it on like an outside thief or something because it was, they're already in a sketchy part of town. Mm -hmm. The people that are staying there are also a little little sketchy sketchy. yeah so he had every opportunity but just never made any moves so why would he suddenly Mm -hmm. need to Mm -hmm. so sneed says that the night of the murder rich called him and told him that bantrice was back and in room 102 sneed shows up and goes in with the master key to look for bantrice's car keys to get the money he stashed in the car but bantrice wakes up startled and a fight ensues He pushes Sneed into the window, breaking it, but eventually Sneed is able to hit him enough times to subdue him and then leaves him there to slowly die. Sneed takes the car keys, takes the money in the front seat of the car, and moves the car to the credit union. He then goes back to his room at the motel and cleans himself up. He then says he goes to Glossop's apartment to tell him the job was done and split the about $4,000 is what he said there was. Hmm. So they allegedly split 2000 each, mm-hmm. which is really dumb because he also had $20,000 in the trunk of his car mm-hmm. and he totally missed that. Mm-hmm. And also like you're going to pay someone to kill someone else for less than $2,000 and then make that up with the $2,000 you're going to split? Well, the money that they were splitting was his payment for doing oh, it. Oh, God. So I don't know. It, it It's weird for him to be like, okay, yeah, I'll do this all for you, but you still get half of the money. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) So there's like the payment, the profit Uh is not there for really either one of them. Yeah. But Sneed's confession is very problematic. So in the transcript, you can notice that he kept changing things about his story. And sometimes it seems like he forgets that the story was supposed to tie back into Glossop. Mm. Also, Sneed said nothing about Glossop until Detective Bemo begins interjecting those ideas. Mm. But what doesn't make sense that the detectives didn't catch on to was that Sneed first said that Rich hired him to kill Vantrese, but that when Vantrese woke up after Sneed entered his room, Sneed says he didn't mean to kill him. He just meant to knock him out so he could steal the keys to the car to get the money. So he was hired to kill him, but he is saying he didn't want to kill him. He just just meant to knock him out. Yeah. So like doesn't add up. as he keeps talking, it's just not adding up. It's like, no, I only meant to knock him out. And then later it's like, yeah, but he hired me to kill him. Mm-hmm. And if he was supposed to kill him, why would he show up with a bat? Why wouldn't he show up with a knife or a gun? Something that takes less effort to kill. Mm-hmm. 
So to me, it sounds like a robbery gone bad because Vantrese unexpectedly woke up and put up a fight. Um, and it doesn't sound like Sneed went there on a murder for hire. Right. Either way, investigators closed their case with Sneed's confession and charged Glossop with capital murder while giving Sneed a lesser charge under the condition that he testify against Glossop at trial. What do they have against him? They just went into this already thinking this. So I didn't write this down in the story, but it was in the documentary. There's a co-owner named Carhart, I believe. He has a history of being like a PI investigator. Mm. I don't know. He was like a bodyguard or something like that. But so he shows up looking for him like he's trying to help the police. And he actually tells Sneed, look, look in all the rooms to see if you can find mm. Van Treese and make sure he's not in one of the rooms. Obviously, Sneed is the wrong person to yeah. be asking, unfortunately. So, of course, Sneed's like, no, he's not he's in not any of the rooms. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but eventually, Carhartt does find him. And what's frustrating is that police kind of just let Carhartt take the lead on that. And if they said, oh, no, Vantrese isn't here, they're like, okay, I guess he's not there. I know. I know. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Anyways, eventually, they do find him in room 102. And immediately, he points the police in Glossop's direction. Carhartt does? Carhartt does, yeah. I don't know why, but he was just like, you need to look at Glossop. He's the manager. Like, you know, something might be up. And so police take Glossop in for questioning already with this idea that, like, this guy probably did it. And so it was just, like, tunnel vision from the start. Yeah, but also, like, why are you letting some random, like, guide your investigation and Mm -hmm. lead it, basically, Mm -hmm. with these, like preconceived notions that oh i think it's this guy with absolutely no reason behind it other than that's just what he happens to think oh yeah it was just bad from the start so let's look at what the investigation actually entailed and the evidence they had sneed gave a really detailed confession of how he murdered vantrese and all of it matched the physical evidence so sneed being the murderer was never in question but what investigation did they do for evidence against glossop Okay, so keep this in mind, too. They're starting this investigation with already in their mind that Glossop did it, mm-hmm. right? Because they first were already talking to Glossop and Sneed about this. And so going into this investigation, they have an idea of what happened. And so we all know that's what they're going to be. That's what they're going to look for. They're going to specifically look for evidence that fits their narrative. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be like, okay, let's just investigate everything and see what, what we come up with. They already had their people, mm-hmm. quote unquote. And so it is fairly obvious the way the investigation was done that they went into this just looking for what they can get against right. Glossop. So the night that Vantrese was murdered, more than 40 people were at or around the motel or had talked to Vantrese that day. Oklahoma City Police interviewed only 11 of them. There were at least 20 registered motel guests that night, but the police only talked to three of them. Oh my God. None of these witnesses gave information that pointed to Glossop's involvement. Although investigators had a theory that Glossop was embezzling from the motel, they never formally interviewed Vantrese's wife, who was the motel's bookkeeper. They also never collected the motel's books, bank records, or tax returns, or consulted an accountant to show proof of embezzlement. Fingerprints taken by police were only compared to Sneed, Glossop, and the victim. None of these fingerprints, though, belonged to Glossop. Although there were multiple unidentified fingerprints, police never investigated who they might belong to. And a lot of these pieces of evidence would later be destroyed before the defense team could examine it. Glossop's living girlfriend, Deanna Wood, was interviewed and her story matched Glossop's. But Detective Bemo's response to that was that Glossop just kept her out of the plans and that's why she didn't suspect anything. In the documentary, Detective Bemo stated that at that point, he was already convinced that Glossop was guilty and he couldn't tell him anything otherwise. He literally said this in the documentary. They also found that Glossop had somewhere around $2,000 on him, which prosecutors had said had to be the money that was split during the robbery. And also, the day after the murder, Glossop went to the store to look for an engagement ring for his girlfriend. So, either this was really bad timing on Glossop's part, (laughs) or it shows that he knew he had some money from the robbery and was going to use it for the ring. The investigation in total only lasted 10 days. So, just looking at the investigation on its own, it sounds like police decided their opinion early on and didn't put much, if any, effort into getting as much information as they could, Whether you believe Glossop is innocent or guilty, I think it's safe to say that 
This case was definitely prematurely closed, and this is nowhere near the level of investigative work needed to try a capital murder case. Absolutely not. Or any case. No. Like, <laughs> no cases yeah. should be worked like this. Okay, so on to the trial for Glossop's capital murder charge. Glossop states that the prosecution walked in with boxes full of stuff, and his defense attorney came in with one small box and a briefcase. Hmm. Glossop knew he was already in trouble. So the prosecution brought Justin Sneed to stand to testify that Glossop hired him to kill Van Trees for money, to hide his embezzlement, and so that he could take over as the boss of the motel. The other evidence they used was that Glossop had cash on him and that Van Trees's wife created this document that allegedly showed that $6,000 may have been missing, and that was their proof of embezzlement. She, like, created this document. Like, she wrote in stuff and gave it to them, and... They said this shows that about $6,000 was missing, so this had to have shown embezzlement. We're going to talk about more about that later. Did they get, they got to her? I'm not sure. Um, we'll t- We're going to talk about this specifically okay. in a little bit, and so I, I think we'll figure out exactly what happened. Um, but that's basically it. That's all they had. That is all they brought to trial. So no physical evidence, no DNA evidence, no official accounting information to prove embezzlement, no text messages or emails of Glossop ordering the hit, and no other witnesses to corroborate Sneed's statement. The entire prosecution's case relied on the sole testimony of the murderer, Justin Sneed, cash that Glossop had, and a made-up accounting sheet. During the trial, prosecutors painted Sneed to be a very weak and vulnerable person, and that at one point, they compared him to a puppy. Oh, yeah. don't do that to puppies. The prosecution said, quote, It's as if Justin Sneed was a Rottweiler puppy, let's say 11 months old. This is what he said. Is there court. a conversion chart somewhere that we need to be looking at? Because like, what? Oh, 11-month-old puppy. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. No, I get Glossop it. hired him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Many people close to Sneed, though, state the opposite. That he, in fact, is a violent person, heavily abusing drugs, and often at the center of criminal activities. So he's about a three to four-year-old Rottweiler. Right. Adult. An adult. Full okay. on. Got it. Okay. When it came to the defense team, they didn't really present anything. There was a tape of Sneed's confession that showed how investigators basically gave Sneed information regarding Glossop's involvement and how Sneed's story continuously changed throughout the interrogation. But the defense team didn't present that. They didn't even present any witnesses. In the documentary, Glossop's defense lawyer, Wayne Fornerit, admitted that he sucked. He literally said, oh, I sucked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At least he's honest. Yeah. He said he was not experienced or ready for this type of case. This was his first homicide case, much less a capital murder case. Reading the transcript, he was all over the place, didn't make much sense at all, and didn't bring anything of value. Mm. Oh, he rambled about random things, didn't make sense. He brought up these random, like, conspiracy theories. I don't know. It was just, it was a mess. Um, When he was on the documentary, he seemed very remorseful Mm -hmm. about the work that he did and he does admit that this case actually like completely ruined his life like his life just spiraled out of control after this case because of how bad it went Mm -hmm. so when the trial was over the jury found Glossop guilty but soon after the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals unanimously overturned the conviction they said that Glossop's defense team showed signs of quote glaring deficiencies and unreadiness The appeals court further stated that they were shocked that the tape of Sneed's confession wasn't presented at trial. But before we go any further, I want to talk about the man in charge of the Oklahoma County DA's office at the time of Glossop's first trial. And this is how I came across this case, because it's the same district attorney in charge of the Julius Jones case from episode 13 that we did. Hmm. Bob Macy, nicknamed Cowboy Bob, was known as one of the deadliest DAs in the country because he sent more people to death row than any other individual district attorney in the United States. Wow. He wore that badge proudly and made sure to keep count of how many people he could send to death row. Okay. So dangerous. What a guy. Oh, gosh. After 21 years, Macy had to resign in the wake of a false evidence scandal as he already had a long history of breaking the rules to secure death sentences. Oklahoma courts overturned several of his death sentences because of misconduct. Macy worked with a forensic expert named Gilcrest, who was nicknamed Black Magic. (laughs) But during an FBI investigation, she was also found to have tampered with evidence and was said to have been testifying about forensic science beyond her scope. 
She too lost her career along with Macy. Gilcrest was also involved with Glossop's case. Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project conducted a study of the five deadliest prosecutors in America, which included Macy. In the report, Harvard Law professor Ronald Sullivan said that the win-at-all-cost mentality has led to shockingly high rates of prosecutorial misconduct and wrongful convictions. The study further reported that these five deadliest prosecutors list that Macy was in accounted for one out of every seven death row inmates in the U.S. currently. The Saving Richard Glossop website states that, unfortunately, things haven't improved much since Macy's resignation. In 2013, an Oklahoma County prosecutor was suspended by the Oklahoma Supreme Court for hiding evidence helpful to the defense and coercing witnesses in two death penalty cases. In 2014, two more prosecutors were fired for failing to alert the defense when an important witness made statements that undercut the state's case. Furthermore, the National Registry of Exonerations has documented 10 wrongful convictions from just this one county in Oklahoma. Four of them included documented official misconduct, seven involved the use of false or misleading evidence, two of the exonerees were on death row, three more were serving life sentences. So there's a lot going on in Oklahoma City, especially when it comes to their criminal justice system and death row in general. Um, it's it's such a mess. And I saw this in the Julius Jones case. And I guess it's, you know, you see one case and you kind of think like, oh, you know, it's just this one case that's a mess. And it's like, no, it really isn't. It's literally every single case that comes into the county mm-hmm. is already facing this uphill battle and already going up against, you know, this misconduct and this hiding of evidence. And it's just, it's not okay. So Glossop gets a second trial in 2003. His second lawyer, Mr. Birch, went all in to build a good defense for Glossop. He visits Glossop a lot and did a lot of investigative work. He even visited Sneed in prison to see if he could find something that would be helpful for cross-examination. But the assistant DA accused Birch of threatening Sneed at this visit, so the judge took him off the case even though he had dedicated so much time and effort into this already. So Glossop was assigned two new lawyers who now only had six months to prepare for the case. It's like everything that could go wrong with this case went wrong. (laughs) And unfortunately, his new lawyers weren't any better than the team he had in the first trial. Again, they did not present any witnesses. And again, they still didn't even show the interrogation tape of Sneed. So again, Glossop was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. On a second appeals process, the court said that if the second set of lawyers also failed to show the tapes, then there must have been a good reason for it. So they denied the appeal. Oh, no, but it couldn't be that they were just bad lawyers. Right. Or unprepared. I mean, maybe they were decent lawyers, but they were thrown into this case Mm -hmm. and unprepared. Just like the first one, he admitted. He's like, I wasn't ready for this. I feel like with these type of cases, there should be... If you're going to have a public defender, it should be a public defender who's tried mm-hmm. a murder case mm-hmm. or who maybe has experience doing capital punishment cases because it's not fair to just give you someone who's never mm-hmm. done something like this because there, it takes so much work. Yeah. And if you don't know what you're doing, like, how is that fair to the person you're defending? Yeah. So Glossop ends up sitting in prison for a couple decades. Then a new defense team decides to take on Glossop's case pro bono. Sister Helen Prejean gets involved with the case. You might remember her from the death penalty episode we did, uh, but she reached out to the defense lawyer, Don Knight, and his team and asked if he could help. And in the documentary, Knight says, when Sister Helen asks for your help, you do it. So they take on his case, and I have to say they are definitely a powerhouse. Um, I had reached out to them to see if they had any statements for the podcast, and they immediately set up a phone call with me. And I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Mary Wright, who's also featured in the documentary. It is very obvious that they're a dedicated team. Uh, They're passionate about helping Glossop, and they are extremely knowledgeable of the criminal justice field, something that Glossop's other lawyers were clearly lacking. So it's definitely exciting to have this defense team behind Glossop now. Um, But it was quickly apparent to them that this case was going to be an uphill battle. And this is where things, once again, get interesting. So Knight's team requests to see the files that the Oklahoma County DA's office has on the case, but the DA refused to provide it to them. And I don't even understand how that can be legal. I don't understand how you can 
you know, someone has a defense team, you're just like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to show you any of the files. Right. That doesn't make sense to me. Mm -mm. There's no rules against that. Like, that's not a law. Actually, I'm going to talk about some bills that they're trying to pass. So maybe that'll (laughs) explain it better. (laughs) So this is where we start to find out just how shady the prosecution team and the DA has been with this case. It turns out that the DA's office has been responsible for destroying a lot of evidence from the investigation when they shouldn't have. Knight found a report that showed that in 1999, Oklahoma City police destroyed evidence stating that the case was closed and all appeals were already exhausted. But this wasn't true. Uh, His appeal wasn't for another two years after that time. Mm -hmm. And that appeal was actually what led to his second trial. So even if Glossop had a good defense team for that second trial, they Mm -hmm. wouldn't have had access to the evidence anyway because it was destroyed already oh my god remember the fbi would later conclude that oklahoma city had a history of tampering with evidence there was a surveillance video from a gas station across the street from the murder scene but the da felt it did not have any evidentiary value so they have not allowed the defense team to view it that's crazy yeah (laughs) i'm sorry i don't feel like there's any evidence on this so i'm just not going to show you yeah what no Also, when Don Knight and his team examined the photographs of the money recovered from both Sneed and Glossop, they noticed a glaring detail that no one had talked about. Sneed's money was covered in blood. Mm. There was blood smeared and spattered all over every single bill, which makes sense because he got into a struggle with Vantrese and was left bloody. But Glossop's money was crisp and 100% clean. Mm -hmm. Not a drop of blood on any of them. If Sneed is the one who picked up the money, how did he only get blood on his money and not what was alleged to be Glossop's half? Right. And even if you try to say, well, maybe he didn't get it on, maybe he didn't get blood on the money when he first grabbed it. Maybe he got it after, you know, got blood on it after um, they split it. If you remember from Sneed's statement, after he took the money, he went and cleaned himself up. He took a shower, Mm -hmm. he cleaned himself up, and then then he went to Glossop's house. So he wasn't still this like bloody mess. He had already cleaned himself up. Mm -hmm. And then Don Knight does something the prosecutors never did, which was hire an expert, Pamela Kerr, who is a forensic accountant to review the embezzlement allegations. She reviewed the records and concluded that there was no embezzlement. So Donna Vantrese, the wife of the victim, gave the prosecution the projected income they could get, which is how many rooms the hotel had multiplied by how much they cost. And that is what they used to compare to what revenue the motel had. And this is what they used to prove embezzlement. Oh my God. You can't compare the projected income and the actual income and say that it must mean money was stolen. Yeah. Because that would assume that the motel would have to be sold out every single day for a long time <laughs> and probably not taking into account like overhead and what it costs to actually keep the motel running so when kerr examined all of the financial documentations she concluded that the motel made about six thousand dollars less than what could be projected which is the exact amount the prosecution accused glossop of stealing from financial statements kerr said that the money in the envelope that was stolen from Vantrice would have been about twenty six hundred dollars Sneed said they split the money evenly, but he was found with about $1,700, which is not half of $2,600, and doesn't add up to what was found on Glossop. The defense team also points out that Sneed has a lot of inconsistencies in his statements and gave three different versions of his story. As one example, in the first version, Sneed says that Glossop called him on the phone to tell him Vantrese was back. In the second version at trial, Sneed said that Glossop banged on his door to wake him up to tell him Vantrese was back. Then, at the second trial, Sneed said Glossop had keys to the motel room, so he opened the door to his motel room to tell him Vantrese was back. Every statement, he embellished more, he added more to the story, and Glossop's original defense team did not present these inconsistencies to the jury, and of course, the prosecution didn't even care. So in the documentary, you can see everything the prosecution said start to unravel, but unfortunately, none of it was enough to win another appeal. So let's look at the timeline of events after Glossop's conviction and leading to his execution dates. So on April 14th, 2014, Oklahoma City scheduled two executions for the same day, and these were the two people in line before Glossop, which would have meant that he was next. Mm -hmm. So Clayton Lockett goes first at 6 p.m., 
After given the drug that's supposed to stop the heart, Lockett begins to struggle and his body begins like convulsing almost for about nine minutes. <gasps> and at one point, uh, Lockett is heard saying, oh man. So the sedative Lockett was given, uh, midazolam, was not designed to work in the way that it that they used it. Mm. He was basically tortured in those nine oh. minutes. Execution staff waited around and did nothing until he died. Glossop said he could hear from his cell oh Lockett God. screaming during the botched execution. So Oklahoma City had to revise their protocols before moving forward with any executions. Soon after, Glossop was given a clemency hearing, but he was denied. How can you deny him? <laughs> I don't get it. On yeah. what ground? I mean, at this point, I think mm -hmm. it's just pride and not mm -hmm. wanting to admit that it was an awful investigation. Yeah. In the documentary, someone said that in the clemency hearing, it sounded like they were going in hoping that he would be like remorseful or mm. like apologize for the murder. But I, we can't keep yeah, saying like, we're only going to let you go if you admit to it and apologize when they've been saying that they're innocent the whole time because right. we've seen people that are later proven to actually be innocent and they were denied, you know, parole or a pardon or clemency because they wouldn't admit to it. I, and I don't understand how this is. I get like they want to show that you're um, that you've changed, mm -hmm. right? That you're remorseful and that you can be productive in society now and not kill people or whatever the case is. But what do we do in these situations when people are innocent? Right. There's no way around it. Like Just there's expect no them to admit to something that they didn't do and then throw it in their face later on saying, well, you you confessed mm -hmm. to this. So mm -hmm. and now you're saying you didn't do it. It's like there's no winning. No, absolutely not. So Glossop was given a second execution date of January 29th, 2015. Charles Warner, who was supposed to be executed after Lockett in 2014, but was spared because of the botched execution, ended up being executed two weeks before Glossop's date and everything went normal. Mm. So everything was like, all right, Next. let's keep going. Mm -hmm. This is the time that Sister Helen Prejean takes more attention to the case and begins a campaign to fight for Glossop's innocence. She pushed to take his case to the Supreme Court on the issues of the drugs being used for lethal injection. So, after Glossop was prepped for his execution and given his last meal, the Supreme Court granted Glossop a stay while they reviewed the case. And it's so weird whenever someone is given a stay, it's literally always minutes before their execution is supposed to occur. It's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. Like, why couldn't you guys decide this in the morning or the day before? You know what I mean? Anyways, um... But then the court decided in a split five to four ruling that Oklahoma City can use uh, any drugs that they wanted for the lethal injection process. Even the midazolam, they were allowed to use it. Oh, my God. Even though it had caused the botched execution prior. So Glossop was given a new court date uh, later in September 2015. Again, the defense team, along with Sister Helen and now Susan Sarandon, <laughs> knew that they had to do a big media push again to get attention to this case. So they go on the Dr. Phil show and pleaded his case. Everyone in the audience was shocked that he was on death row. You could see like the audience face like, what is going on? Now a lot of people were aware of this case and Glossop became the poster child for abolishing the death penalty. So after the Dr. Phil show, more witnesses came forward but were scared to sign affidavits. On September 5th, 2015, Sneed's former cellmate, Michael Scott, came forward and said that Sneed told him he set Glossop up and that Glossop didn't do anything. But the DA didn't like this and said it wasn't going to be okay for them to use his testimony because Scott was a criminal himself. On September 14, 2015, Don Knight called a press conference to present Scott's affidavit as new evidence to prove innocence and ask for a new trial. On September 15th, Glossop is again prepped for execution and served his last meal for a second time. Mm -mm. But just before he was scheduled to be executed, he was granted a stay so they could review this new evidence, thankfully. On September 21st, Scott was arrested by deputies with guns drawn to take him in to the, be interrogated by the DA, David Prater. They tell Scott they want him to recant his story or they will charge him and throw him in jail for lying. My God. Then they created a smear campaign and news articles stated that Scott wasn't a credible witness because he was a criminal. Well, private records of Scott were leaked to the press and of course they published it. And this was like private records of like criminal history or whatever mm -hmm. cases. Um, in the documentary, they interviewed the journalist who published it. And when asked if the DA, David Prater, was the one who leaked it, 
He laughed and said no comment. And it wasn't a laugh like, oh, haha, you're, uh, you know, barking up the wrong tree yeah. type. It was like, oh, you got me. Yeah. No comment. Oh, yeah. I hate that they're like, no, he's not credible because he's a criminal. But they took his first statement. As no, they took Sneed's statement, oh, okay. you know, as the sole reason to getting Glossop, mm-hmm. but he's a criminal too. He's the murderer, but his statement is credible, but Scott isn't credible because he's a criminal. And I feel like this happens so many times where there's these snitch testimonies. And if it helps the prosecution, they're like, no, we have to give it to him. And we're going to give him lighter sentences mm-hmm. for it, you know? But then if it's someone that's like, no, actually, you know, it's going to help the defense team all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's not credible because he's a criminal. Yeah. They always use it to their advantage. And if it doesn't help them, then they create these smear campaigns. It just does. It's not fair. Mm-mm. So the DA made it extremely difficult for anyone to come forward. A second witness had wanted to come forward with an affidavit. But two days later, that witness had a warrant for his arrest so they could pick him up and talk to him. So Glossop's appeals ended up being denied for a new hearing and an evidentiary hearing was also denied. So on September 30th, 2015, Glossop was again scheduled to be put to death at 3 p.m. This is the third time I now. can't. He's mm-hmm. had three final meals. Mm-hmm. That is so messed up, just like mentally and emotionally. Oh, yeah. And also, so I didn't know this, but... Um, when they get closer to their execution date and they move them into mm-hmm. like that special hallway or special cell or whatever it is, and they, they have to leave the lights on 24 hours a day for like a week leading up to that be- so that they could watch him, you know, keep eyes on him, make sure that he doesn't die by suicide or, you know, harm himself or something. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this, the whole process of yeah. it, weeks leading up to it is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And it just, I can't even imagine what he's had to go through three times. At this point, he needed a miracle because he had exhausted all of his appeals and they didn't have anything new to present. So the Supreme Court denied a stay and the execution was on. Everyone thought there was nothing they could do. It was over and everyone was just crying. They were showing it in the documentary. Everyone's just kind of outside waiting around and like hugging each other and crying because like Mm -hmm. it was it. There, There was just nothing, literally nothing they could do. So Glossop was stripped down, fed his last meal for the third time, and was waiting to die. 3 p.m. passes, and it hasn't started. Then it's 4 p.m., and everyone was confused. Some thought that he had already died. Um, An ambulance, like, drove by at one point, and they're like, oh, you know, that has to have been Mm -hmm. for him. But then news broke that Governor Mary Fallon granted a stay because they needed another drug to perform the execution. They had the wrong drug. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. So they had the wrong drug that they Are almost... we still in 2015? Yes, this is 2015. Oh, gosh. So... And they were so close to executing him. Yeah. They were so close so to it. So he's just had a bunch of miracles oh, basically happen. Oh, my gosh. So the drug that they had was actually a food preservative. Oh, my God. They almost gave him a food preservative. Imagine how botched his execution would have mm-hmm. been if they gave him a food preservative mixed with the other stuff how do you mess that up oh my gosh yeah we're about to talk about that oh okay so after this drug mix-up attorney general scott pruitts issued a moratorium on executions to do an investigation people involved with this had already resigned but (laughs) testified in front of a grand jury so the grand jury found that the director had changed the execution protocols without authority the pharmacist ordered the wrong drug There was no inspection of the drugs, and the warden didn't notify anyone that there was no inspections. Um, And the death row chief didn't notice it was the wrong drugs. Eventually, the Department of Corrections attorney called the governor and said they had the wrong drug. And the governor attorney said, no, go ahead with the execution. Mm -mm. It's fine. It's the same drug. Google it. Word for word, what he said. My God. Google it. It's the same drug. Go ahead. So even the gover- governor's attorney was like, no, keep going. You need to execute this guy. Unbelievable. No one ended up being indicted on this issue. And the grand jury suggested that the Oklahoma City use alternative methods such as nitrogen gas instead. So at this time, there's not another execution date set. Uh, there is currently a litigation case happening in Oklahoma City for the use of certain drugs in the lethal injection process. And this is also what's holding up the Julius Jones case as well. So they're kind of both in the same like situation. Mm -hmm. Two completely separate cases, 
you know, have nothing to do with each other, shouldn't lump them together, but they are in a similar situation right now. So now it's just a waiting game to see what happens uh, with that and see if any other new evidence comes up. At this point, the only way to get back into court for this case is to establish innocence, which is at an extremely high bar. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't make any sense because getting him on death row seemed like a really low. low burden. Yeah, no. Like the lowest just... of the low. Like, hey, that murderer said you did it. You hired him. So you did You it. got death row. But then again, I'm out. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you got to jump through a ton of hoops. BTW, I destroyed all your evidence. Yeah. So you better find some new stuff. So basically, at this point, it's just a wait. Like, that he could, they could set a date for him at any moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just going through the litigation case right now regarding the lethal injection process. And I, I'm sure Oklahoma City is going to push as much yeah. as they can to figure out how they can fix it so they can continue with executing people so we got to wait to see what happens with that first and then you know with the execution date but really nothing is going to change until new evidence comes up mm-hmm. in the documentary sneed said that he doesn't believe he should spend the rest of his life in prison because he was truthful and that we teach children that it's a good thing to be honest it was so dumb he's like <laughs> we teach kids to be honest and then you know good things will happen to them and i was honest I was honest about murdering someone. So So I shouldn't be here forever. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Um, He believes that since he told the truth to police that he should get leniency for it, which he already did. He didn't get the death penalty. Glossop did. Sneed said he also has struggled with the idea of the execution of Glossop because why should he die if Sneed isn't? (laughs) But then he said he forgives Glossop for what he did and is moving on with his life. It just shows you what kind of person he is. Forgives him for what? For air quotes, hiring him to kill (laughs) Vantries. What? He's delusional. Nothing's changed with him. You know, he's still the same. It's it's who his character is. And for someone to say like, he was a Rottweiler puppy. Yeah. No, but these are the things that he's saying. Like, no, I forgive him for hiring me to kill someone. Like, (laughs) homie, don't kill someone. You didn't have to kill him. Yeah. Detective Bimo appeared in the documentary and he was asked about his feelings now that people are claiming his innocence. And Bimo said that he did his job and is done with the case. Whether he gets executed or not is not on him. That's on the court system. No, you are a part of the court. You're the one that put everything in motion. So let's do a quick recap of the evidence just so we can sum this all up. The prosecution relied on the testimony of the actual murderer, who you can see was fed information in his interrogation tapes. Prosecution said Glossop wanted to hire Sneed to kill Van Trees to hide his embezzlement and become the boss. They based the embezzlement evidence on the projected income the motel could have made, and a forensic accountant disproved any evidence of this. Sneed changed the story multiple times and even said he just meant to knock out Van Trees when he woke up and not kill him which already goes against the killer for hire story he started with. The girlfriend corroborated with Glossop's story. Money found on Sneed was covered in blood. Money found on Glossop was perfectly clean. Multiple witnesses have said that Sneed either confessed to them or he did this on his own or that he previously talked about robbing people and was a violent character who was heavily addicted to drugs and already had a warrant for his arrest in another state. There's no physical DNA tied to Glossop at the crime scene. All we have is an overzealous detective with tunnel vision and an overzealous DA who is obsessed with sending people to death. This whole execution is based on a sole testimony of the actual murderer and a detective who set everything in motion the second he got into that interrogation room. And that is why I'm having such an issue with the death penalty. It's beyond dealing with politics, it's beyond talking about morals, and it's beyond religion. It's really coming down to, does the criminal justice system work 100% of the time? Is it flawless? And is it, in fact, just and fair? When we look at cases like Glossop, it's so scary to know that the death penalty does exist. We have said this before, that capital punishment is really a poor person's issue. You'll never see a rich person on death row, and it is so obvious by the way Glossop's case was handled at trial twice 
when I had my phone conversation with Mary Wright, she made a really good point. She basically said that people like Glossop are forced to get these inexperienced and ineffective counsel while being up against these big prosecution teams who have all the resources at their disposal. They have the cooperation of the police department and Mm -hmm. they have people like Bob Macy who dedicate their life to convicting people and is later found to have been involved in misconduct on their cases. And there are forensic, in quotes, experts like Gilchrist Mm -hmm. who also later lose their career over tampering with evidence. It's also crazy because that's why Brady violations exist. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, why they were never, like, granted these or I don't know how you say it. But Brady violations exist when the prosecution team or the police is keeping information from the defense team that mm-hmm. could help their case and it seems like that happened a lot especially given the fact that like they destroyed evidence yeah. before the case was actually done mm-hmm. so why i why feel like just on those it? grounds he deserves whatever another trial or yeah. clemency or exoneration because mm-hmm. how you this case is going to be so hard to prove his innocence when the people <laughs> collecting evidence or Mm -hmm. destroying evidence when you have a da who is out to put people on death row Mm -hmm. who has had multiple cases come up as being incorrectly done or you know misconduct yeah it just doesn't make any sense the fact that his first trial was under bob macy's watch Mm -hmm. i feel like already they should take a closer look at his case and see like exactly what's going on yeah it seems like every time the defense team now is is reaching out for information. The DA just keeps saying like, no, but there's there's no evidentiary value to that. So that's why we don't have to show it to you. But who is watching over the DA to make sure that that's not a lie? Like, I don't understand. The checks and balances. Yeah. that It reminds me of making a murderer mm-hmm. where it's like Stephen Avery was up against the state, yeah. basically, right? Yeah. And at every level, like every time he took it up a step, it was the same people trying to it was people trying to cover for the people below them mm-hmm. because it, mm-hmm. they're still it's one entity, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one in the state wants to admit that people they've hired or people they've voted into yeah. office are either having misconduct issues mm-hmm. or doing their job incorrectly. So I think it's in the state's benefit to just keep like keep them down, like yeah. keep keep denying them, keep. It just it's crazy because you're right like there really is no checks and balances and it's so hard for the Supreme Court to take on mm-hmm. a case that in order to even get there it has to be something so crazy and to me this case is incredibly crazy but yeah. if he's exhausted everything we're literally just sitting here waiting. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. That's not how our criminal justice system should be. And and people should be scared of this. I don't think people realize, you know, we're doing these episodes to, yeah, shed light on the injustices in the criminal justice system. But at the same time, like, to let you know, you should be afraid of our criminal justice system and push for reform because this could literally happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. This could be anybody that you know, especially when we talk about the death penalty in general, you know, the first thing people always say, it's like, well, what about if one of your family members were murdered? You know, how would you feel uh, about the death penalty? And it's like, yeah, but what if it was one of my family members that was on the other side mm-hmm. of it and they're trying to convict this person with like really no evidence, yeah, but a testimony of one person who actually did it, then how would you feel in that case yeah. about the death penalty? And there's no way around it. And people are like, well, no, there's there's systems, there's Mm-mm. appeals, and, and that's going to catch what's wrong. It's like, no, it's not. This guy exhausted all of his appeals with so much glaring issues coming through, and the DA just keeps pushing it down over and over again, hiding stuff, destroying stuff. Mm-hmm. Our criminal justice system is supposed to be fair and just. You know, that's always what it is. Like, especially with our country, we always talk about constitutional rights and human rights and all this stuff but it's like is this really how it should be is it really like the entire police department against someone who's never been to trial before i think it's really easy for people who have never been in a situation like this or who haven't had family members or friends who have been in a situation like this to like really believe this idea of innocence until innocent until proven guilty Mm -hmm. and so when people end up in court or end up arrested for something to them it's like well they are arrested because they 
they must have done something because right, the right. police must have done their job. Mm-hmm. And that's how you kind of keep, I think, the majority subdued and yeah. under the impression like, well, it works, you know, that's why not everyone is just in jail. But the reality is, if you really look at a lot of these cases, like mm-hmm. some of these cases, it's just crazy what people are arrested on. Like mm-hmm. they're arrested on nothing and and end up on death row. So on like, what theories. does that tell you? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's done by everyone with malicious intent. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we're all humans Mm -hmm. with different experiences, different preconceived notions. And so when you have the job of having to decide who did it, why they did it, like that's hard you yeah. like there's going to be human error yeah. and and i th- i think the bigger problem is that once you get into these positions you kind of forget <laughs> that you are human mm-hmm. and that you do make errors and it's hard to get out of that tunnel vision yeah so that's i think the bigger problem is that there really is n- no checks and balances because the people who are doing that are in that same mindset of like mm-hmm oh, well, you're a police department or you're a detective, like you must be doing this right. So we're going to be on your side. So you're Mm -hmm. 100% right. Like when you're on the other side, you've got an entire governmental agency Mm -hmm. on against you. Yeah. And how do you how does one person with a public defender battle that? It's not just an uphill battle. It's an impossible. Mm -hmm. It's crazy that we can even share stories of people who have been exonerated or who. Yeah. It's incredible that some people have managed to do that, but Mm -hmm. it's just so sad. Well, with Glossop specifically, it's obvious that he never had a chance. Um, Whether you think Glossop is innocent or guilty, I think we can all agree that the criminal justice system is broken in so many ways. And until we can fix that, I don't think it's fair to even have the debate of whether or not the death penalty should exist. And like I've said before, the debate typically falls into political categories between liberals and conservatives. Not not always, but usually. So after I did my death penalty episode, we had a lot of friendly debate on social media, <laughs> I'd say. Um, so I wanted to further understand the conservative view regarding the death penalty, which I usually try to do for any political topic, just so I can understand both sides before forming my own opinion. I think it's obvious that both of us are liberal. Lean, li- we yeah. definitely lean liberal. I know that about me and you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't want to have tunnel vision mm-hmm. either. So I do try to research as much as I can about, you know, the conservative view and why they came to those conclusions. And sometimes I can like understand it, but not agree with it. Mm-hmm. And then there's other times where I'm just like, I don't know how I we can. also we also lean progressive and lean liberal. We are very progressive. But we both have family and friends mm-hmm. who lean the other way. And so I think we're in a unique space where we're pretty set on our views, mm-hmm. but we also are almost forced to understand the other side. Mm-hmm based on the like relationships that we have and the love that we have for those people. Mm-hmm. Because before that, I don't know that I would have necessarily wanted to sit there and understand. But like, I mean, I'm at a point where it's not not like I'm being forced to, mm-hmm. but I love them and I mm-hmm. want to try to understand them. And so I think it's definitely opened my eyes and mm-hmm. made me be a little more accepting of other people's views. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I agree with them. Yeah. And that's the thing. You don't always have to agree. There's some things that can't be accepted. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some things that we cannot be okay with and just say like, oh, it's just our differences, obviously. But in general, I always try to learn the other side of it. And usually my go-to conservative to learn from is Ben Shapiro. (laughs) I will say, I don't usually agree with him. Usually, I don't agree Mm -hmm. with him ever. I respect the background that he has and the education that he has. So I watched three different videos where he talks about capital punishment. And he usually spends like five minutes talking about why he's in favor of the death penalty. But in the end of each speech, he says, like he goes on this whole rant, and then he goes, but unfortunately, the criminal justice system is flawed. Sometimes they get it wrong, and it's not always fair. Um, He goes on by saying that he believes that capital punishment is unevenly distributed, and that it's really hard to even have the discussion of capital punishment when the government sucks (laughs) and doesn't really know what they're doing. I can completely Mm -hmm. get behind that. We agree, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, we agree. (laughs) 
Um, so I think Ben Shapiro really hits the nail on the head with that one. We can't have this debate until the criminal justice system can be perfected. And until then, capital punishment in our current criminal justice system is just not fair. And because of this, Glossop has gone through the traumatic process of being within minutes of execution three different times. Mm-hmm. So my call to action, I suggest that you watch the documentary Killing Richard Glossop and share his story with as many people as you can. Check out the official website, saverichardglossop.com, and visit their social media pages. Uh, The links to those can be found on the website as well. They have an official Facebook page and Twitter. So they don't have an official Instagram page, but there is a page that is dedicated to advocating for him and, you know, getting his story out. And that's under at Save Rich Glossop and Glossop has two S's in it. Um, So I believe it's one of the people who um, is an admin for the page had reached out to us, Melissa, and uh, she's one of the people who had submitted the story for us to cover So thank you for that. Follow her page too for more information about um, Richard Glossop. You can call the governor of Oklahoma to ask that he support the case. You can email the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board on his behalf. Um, And what is really important right now is to help support two bills that Don Knight and his team are supporting and hoping to make it to the House of Representatives. So these two bills are House Bill 2219, which is for disclosure of evidence after conviction. That sounds super necessary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why don't we already have this? And then there's House Bill 2220, which is for a prosecutor conduct review panel. You can email the Judiciary Committee's chairman at randy, R-A-N-D-E, dot worthen, W-O-R-T-H-E-N, at okhouse.gov and you can kindly request that they move the bills out of the committee to the house of representatives all of the information to these calls to action can be found on our social media pages as well so that's the complicated story of richard glossop if you or someone you know has any possible information regarding the case please reach out to don knight and his team their contact info can be found on the website But witnesses keep coming forward, which is amazing, and you never know if you are holding the missing piece to the case, no matter how insignificant you think the information is. There's been so many times where, like, decades-old cases or unsolved cases, someone comes forward with one small piece of information that they didn't even think was important, and it's the missing puzzle piece that really takes down the whole case Mm -hmm. and solves it, so... Make yourself known. Mm -hmm. It was the Michael David Roy case. When we did that episode... So many people messaged and emailed trying to like give information because it's such a small town mm-hmm. that the entire town listened to the episode, <laughs> but <laughs> it was crazy. That mm-hmm. that was a, a, a wild ride. Um, but people did come forward with some information mm-hmm. and it's like now they're starting to get together and figure out if we can, you know, how we can move forward with the case. And some exciting developments have happened and I'm hoping to be able to do some updates in the near future on that case. But this is why things like this is so important. This is why it's so important to get stories out because you never know who it might reach that might have that one thing that was missing that Mm -hmm. could help. So thanks for listening and thank you in advance for any help you may contribute to Richard Glossop's case. Uh, Before we close out though, I did want to announce that Steph and I are adding a new type of episode to our podcast we'll be introducing mini-sodes and we will be alternating those with regular full-length episodes every other week so the idea behind this is there's people like stuff who will listen to a podcast for an hour or more and then there's people like me who don't have time <laughs> to listen to an hour-long episode <laughs> i was gonna say an hour or more i listen to podcasts literally eight hours a day Okay. Some days. I work from home and I'm very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I work from home too, but I have to listen to court. So there's no, I can't Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts that long. I I can do short. Like spurts. Spurts. Yeah. So either a really short episode or if I have an hour long episode, it'll take me maybe two or three days to actually get through it, Mm -hmm. especially with the kids home. I can't really listen to it. So with the shorter episodes, one, for those of you that are busy it'll be easier for every other week to listen to some of these episodes but for two there's a lot of cases that really don't have a lot of information to it 
And Steph and I have had to pass on these cases because there's no way to create a full length Mm -hmm. episode on this case, but it could, you know, be a a really good case or have valuable information to it. And we just can't cover it because we can't stretch it to 45 minutes or more. And then we have listener submission stories too. And those usually don't take up a whole hour either. It's also a good way of like covering current cases that might not be fully developed, Mm -hmm, but that are mm -hmm. ongoing. And so it's a good way of kind of keeping you guys up to date on what might be going on that's something that might have like a lot to come yeah that at some point we may be able to do a full episode on once more has come out but it's hard because you want to cover as much as you can yeah right now but you're right like we can't do a full episode on something that hasn't happened yet Mm -hmm. so yeah so I think it'll be a good opportunity to be able to expand what we're able to cover and more cases there's been people that have submitted requests for episodes and then we look into it and it's like it sounds really great but it's really short so we can't do it so instead of passing those up we're going to try this out let us know what you think if you like it um i think it'll go well though yeah i'm excited yeah so stay tuned for next week it'll be the first mini episode that we'll have and while we still have you here please subscribe rate and review to our podcast and follow us on social media under unjustly podcasts thanks for being here and we'll see you next week for our mini sode thank you guys bye bye so i stumbled upon richard glossop's case while i was richard i um (laughs) and that's just how dangerous what that's just how that's just dangerous (laughs) accounted for one out of every seven death row imminent intimates it was the dementors michael scott paper company (laughs) because they gotta think we're professional no one thinks that so fucking professional